Well, thanks so much for having me. What a great experience to come and do it in the round, number one. And listen to your worship team, which is just amazing. You guys are really lucky. I get to go all over the country, and trust me, you guys are really blessed here at uh, Green Bay Community. My name is Jim Wallace. I've been working in Los Angeles County for the last 25 years. I kind of grew up in a law enforcement family. My dad was a police officer. He was started in 1961. I was born in his academy. Kind of grew up under his, uh, and he was a guy who, uh, good man, not a believer. Uh, I didn't have any believers in my life, uh, really, growing up. And the guy I respected the most is a pretty committed atheist even today. But I, I, I thought, well, I'll have my own journey on high school. You know, I kind of bought in. I was in a police explorer. Do you guys have explorers here in, in Green Bay? They're like, the, uh, like Boy Scouts at the high school level, right? And they get to go in different, different careers. I spent my time in law enforcement, this geeky haircut, which is not really much different than I have now, I'm afraid. Anyway, but that's another story. But then I, I kind of got rebellious in my college years, and I went off and did a degree in uh, design, a bachelor's degree in design, fine arts. And I spent, uh, I did a master's degree in architecture, which I call architorture, because it felt like architorture. Any architects in the room? Raise your hand if you're an architect. That's it. That's exactly my point. <laughs> Why would anybody, you know, I was like, you know, the Brady Bunch. You, that, it wasn't Greg, it wasn't the dad, Mr. Brady. He was an architect. Yeah, don't, don't do it. Anyway, the point is, by 27, I was back in the academy and uh, started my career in law enforcement. Now, this is a job that teaches you a lot of skill sets I'm going to try to pass on to you today, things I learned while doing the job. You'll spend time typically in this job working in patrol. You start off in patrol, and I did that. I worked two years in gangs, had some fun details, worked in SWAT for three years, had a really good time doing that. And I had a chance to work undercover uh, for four years on a surveillance team where you don't cut your hair, so I didn't cut my hair. Because you're stuck with this haircut your entire career. So you might as well. Now, the only thing I did differently is I did grow that goatee because I felt like my, my five-year-old at the time would draw pictures of his parents for, like, kindergarten. And an open house, you would go, and you couldn't tell the mom from the dad because we had the same haircut. <laughs> so I started to grow a goatee just so I could look different in uh, my kids' drawings. And then eventually, you know, I ended up in investigations. Now, during most of that time, I was not a believer. I stepped foot in a church at the age of 35, first evangelical church I'd ever stepped in for anything other than a wedding or a funeral. And I sat down and the pastor kind of pitched this guy Jesus as a smart guy. You know, he might know a few things. Maybe you want to listen to him, like a wise sage. I was always interested in stealing information from people, so I had no problem listening to Jesus that way. So I bought my first Bible. Red letters, that's all I was concerned about. I want to know what does Jesus have to say about life, didn't really want to get into any of the other stuff. Certainly didn't think Jesus was God. The problem was, as I read through the eyewitness accounts, the Gospels, they really did have elements. You know, they had characteristics that I saw in my casework when you've got more than one witness who sees an account. And so it kind of piqued my interest. And I started to examine them the way we're going to do it today together to see if they really were reliable eyewitness accounts under the same four things I would use to measure any eyewitness to see if they're reliable. And that's what I tried to do. Now, since that time, you know, I've been working cold cases for the last 12 years. And cold cases are simply unsolved murders. If you do a robbery, well, guess what? After a period of time, that's a statute of limitations issue. You cannot go after the bad guy. You can get away with a robbery. But if you do a murder, those things stay open. They don't go solved until you close them, and they don't close until really everyone's dead and there's no way to work the case. We have murders in our books that are 50 years old. They're still open. 
So I went back and started working the cold cases. Now these are the kinds of cases that get a lot of national attention. So we've been on Dateline three times. We've got another Dateline case coming up in May. And so these are cases that teach you certain skills, and I think now I can teach those skills to you. Because I actually ended up getting saved at 35, and now I just try to apply the stuff I know from my casework to this cold case we call Christianity. That's what we're going to do this morning. Now, I want to include this picture of my son. The kid who was in my, at my feet, the little blonde-haired boy at my feet, is now the next generation of Jim Wallace's doing the same job at the same place. We've been here forever, okay? We're like the George Foreman of law enforcement. You know, George's got seven, what, six kids, and they're all named George Foreman. So if you called our department in the last 52 years and you asked for Officer Jim Wallace, there's been somebody there to answer the phone. And for the next 30, my son, the last day, I'm actually in semi-retirement right now, getting ready to be done, I hope, by summer. And so the last day I had to really work as a regular, I told my sergeant, I'm going to put my uniform back on and I want to get in a patrol car and work one shift with my son. So this is me uh, you know, in my uniform here. You can see on this little screen here. And that looks like I'm smiling, but really, that's a grimace because that uniform hadn't been put on in 20 years. <laughs> but I kept a stiff upper lip. I was so glad to peel out of that thing at the end of the day. And when I got to go 10-8, you know, to get ready to go uh, start our shift, the dispatcher uh, assigned us a number, which is for a one-man car. And I called her. I said, no, no, we're a two-man car today. I'm with my son. She says, oh, no, no, no. You're on a ride-along, buddy. You haven't been in a patrol car for 20 years. You're still a one-man car. So my son was like, oh, hey, we're going to get in a shooting. We're going to have a great day. I'm like, no, we're not. This is my last day. Anyway, so what I want to do is give you three generations of, of um, kind of experience and investment. We've all been doing the same job. My son's been doing the same job that I was doing. We're holding the same weapons. We're, we're doing the same stuff. And we're going to go through, I think, about 50 years of expertise today in a very short period of time. And I'm going to give you half of it, which is I've never done before. So when he asked me, do you want to do two services and do two different messages? I'm like, really? We're going to try. I want to start off by showing you where I'm coming from. I work with an organization. I volunteer at an organization called Stand to Reason. I have a pension now, so I'm able to volunteer at a number of different places. And this is a great organization to get materials. And I blog every day at a website surprisingly called coldcasechristianity.com. So I'll be blogging there. If you have any questions, you can reach me there, and you can kind of follow, examine these issues on a daily basis there. And if you wanted to reach me today or tweet about what's happening, this is my, our, our handle so we can tweet on, okay? All that being said, we're going to start by looking at this, the reason why I really am involved in this work. If you haven't paid attention, you, we are under assault right now as Christians by a world that is really post-Christian. Our country is really post-Christian. And the work of folks like Richard Dawkins are really selling by the millions, where any effort we might have to respond are selling by the thousands if we're lucky. We have to be able to respond as Christians to the, the tide that's starting to stem against us. So Richard here says, many of us saw religion as harmless nonsense. I would have been just like Richard. This was me just 17 years ago. I can tell you, I was so committed to this view. You Christians, we might think you were harmless before, but no more. We're done with it. Beliefs might lack all supporting evidence, but we thought, hey, if people need a crutch for consolation, where's the harm? Well, September 11th changed all that. Long before September 11th, my concern was, if you're the kind of people, if I asked you in this room, why are you a Christian? What would you say? I'll tell you what I think you would say, if you're consistent with everyone else I've ever worked with. Well, because I was raised in the church. 
I just believe I've got a relationship with God. I've experienced God in some way. I've known, I pray to God. God's got a relationship with me. I see answered prayer. I know Jesus personally. Let me tell you, I've got a step family, six brothers and sisters, all LDS. My Mormon family would say the exact same thing in the exact same way, and you wouldn't accept what they believe to be true. When our Christian answers start to sound like Mormon answers, we've got a problem. It sounds like we believe something for which there is no supporting evidence. And by the way, folks, that's what the non-believing world thinks of us. Is that true? And by the way, people who make decisions without looking at evidence, you don't want them leading your country. For, for God's sake, please don't let that happen. That's how we get into wars. You Christians are dangerous. It's not enough to be benign about it anymore. Atheists need to stand up and take back the world for a reason. From, mytholo from mythology and people who believe in mythology. So the question I really had was, does, do you think someone like Richard Dawkins even knows the categories of evidence, to know if we do have any supporting evidence. And I knew, as a non-believer, there was no way I could step in this direction without evidence. So today we're gonna to look at this question. I think he would say, look, you might have some arguments for God, some philosophical reasons to believe God is real, but you don't really have any hard evidence, you don't have any direct evidence. Really, what does Richard even know about these things? What qualifies as evidence to begin with? Does Richard know the categories of evidence? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We've got two, two halves. So if you're with us today, right now, great. You can pick up the video of the next service, probably tonight or tomorrow. Or you can come back or stay with us. But I'm going to give you a skill set that I think will help you determine if we have a good case. There are similarities between working cold cases and looking at the Christian worldview. Cold cases are events that are in the past, in the distant past. My cases are typically from 1979 to about 1988. And, and I don't have any living eyewitnesses who can tell me what happened. If that was the case, it wouldn't be cold. <laughs> it would be solved. So I'm looking at cases for which I have no living eyewitnesses who can say I saw him do it. And I'm looking at cases for which I don't have good forensic evidence. There are cases out there that are made with DNA. I just haven't been lucky that way. I've tried. I've looked for those kinds of cases. It's just not been my, my luck. So I had to build the case a different way, build it circumstantially, and I'm going to teach you how to do that today. This is the nature of cold cases, but it's also the nature of the Christian case. We've got an event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, but we do have, and no forensic evidence, but we do have compelling, cumulative, circumstantial evidence that is really irrefutable. And I want to talk about some of that today. Reasons why you can believe. If you have not thought about why Christianity is true, I would suggest you're an accidental Christian. You happen to be in the truth, but you don't know why. And that's a different kind of life you live when you have that kind of a belief. That's a belief that I'm going to show you at the very end. is not, cannot stand up against the tide against us right now. I want to give you a couple of skills you'll need as a detective. The first principle is the difference between what's possible and what's reasonable. Look, anything is possible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You think you walked into the church today, right? Because we did a good job of disguising the front of our ship. So you walked in here thinking you're walking into another day at church. When, of course, you walked in and right away, did someone shake your hand or give you something or say hello to you? That's when we put you in the alien coma. 
And you walked in here thinking you were going to church, and actually, you're not here. You're in an alien-induced coma right now, thinking you're listening to a speaker on the stage while we do tricks and magic tricks and experiments on your body. And tomorrow, you're going to wake up and discover that you were never in church at all. Now, as you're sitting right now in the alien-induced coma, isn't this possible? Yeah, of course it's possible, but it's not reasonable. And there's a distinction between possible and reasonable. Let me show you what it looks like in a court case. You do not camp on what's possible. You have to stay in what's reasonable. If D, oh, we had a case one time where a guy was murdered, or murdered his wife, actually. They fought over some retirement money, and she didn't like what she was getting. She wanted a little more. He wasn't asking for much. She actually worked it so when they sold the house, she would get her share early so he would not have to be a fight about it, right? Well, sure enough, he discovered this little trick and killed her the day after she tried it. Shot her in the head in their own house as she was packing it up. And of course, the DA tried the case. The defense attorney said, how do we know this isn't a botched burglary? You know, somebody comes in and discovers that in the course of a burglary that someone's still home and kills the wife who happened to be there. Well, time out. Do you have any evidence of forced entry? No. Do you have any evidence anything's been taken? No. Any evidence anyone's been in the house other than the husband and wife? No. Any evidence you had a series of burglaries in the neighborhood? No. Then you cannot consider that in your jury deliberation. You have no evidence to support that. That's a possibility, but it's not reasonable, and the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a principle you need to get in your mind. The second thing you need to understand is how to work circumstantial cases. It's very, people have a bad idea about what circumstantial evidence is. Oh, it's just a circumstance. How many times do you turn on TV and someone's talking about a case across the country? Oh, it's going to be tough. It's just circumstantial. Every case I work is just circumstantial. I wish I had a case like this one where someone is accused of killing his girlfriend using that baseball bat. Wouldn't it be nice just to go and interview him? Hey, did you do it? Oh, yeah, I did it. Is that going to happen? I don't think so. I mean, most of the time you can't trust these kinds of folks, especially if they did this 30 years ago, and for 30 years they've been hiding it, right? What if I had a witness, though? Somebody who could say, well, yeah, you know, I've been in this neighborhood for years, and I was uh, at my front yard, and I was trimming the roses, and I looked up, and I saw, you know, across the street, this lady who's been living there. She's a young girl, and she's been living there for a couple of years, but she, her mom lived there before her, and you know, sure enough, she's always fighting with her boyfriend, and I, I hear them fighting again, so I look up, and I see through their plate glass window, they're, they're, they're just going at it. And then before I know it, he's smacking her in the head. And then before I know it, he's got a baseball bat, and he's pummeling her with it, and she's down, and he keeps on swinging. And he runs out to a car, and he drives off. Wow. Well, how do you know who it was? Well, I know who it was, because I've known that girl since she was this high. Her mom grew up in this neighborhood. Her mom's been living here for 30 years. And that guy, he grew up in this neighborhood, too. They've been dating since they were in high school. They've been together all this time. We do all kinds of stuff together. We do family events and Fourth of July. Heck, he was wearing the shirt I gave him for Christmas two years ago. That's pretty compelling. If you had someone like this and she stood up under cross-examination, this one piece of evidence would be enough to convict this guy. This is called direct evidence. It's the only form of direct evidence. Eyewitness testimony. Direct evidence. But what if I don't have her, and as a matter of fact, when this thing was committed, she couldn't tell us much about the suspect. She said, you know, he kind of fits the general weight and build of her boyfriend, but I couldn't tell you for sure because he had a mask on. Now it's a little different. That won't be enough for most of us to convict this guy. We've got to figure out how to, you know, what are we going to do with this, right? Well, we can make the case a different way. I can go out and ask him, what were you doing yesterday at the time of the murder? He gives me an alibi. 
Well, it turns out this alibi is, is, is bad. It's wrong. He's, he's lying. I go out and investigate his alibi, and he hasn't told me a single true thing about what he was doing yesterday. Now I've got a guy who fits the general description, and he's lying about his alibi. Do you think he's guilty? Raise your hand if you think he's guilty. A few. Wow, that's cool. You need to come out to California and get in the jury pool, because if you're this easily convinced, you need to be on my trials. Okay. Well, how about this? I do a search warrant at his house, and this guy happens to have a murder weapon in his home. He's got a baseball bat. Who keeps a baseball bat in their house? Well, of course, everyone keeps a baseball bat in their house, unless you're in Canada, where I do this talk occasionally, on the west side of Canada in Vancouver. Nobody plays baseball. After about a week of doing this talk, somebody walked up to me and says, you know, Jim, here in Vancouver, if you had a baseball bat in your house, that would be suspicious because nobody <laughs> plays baseball here. So when I do the talk in Canada now, what do you think he's holding? Hockey stick. That's right, hockey stick. <laughs> Everyone's got a hockey stick. But this bat is different. In the fat part of the bat, it's actually all dinged and nicked up. Not like he's been using it to hit baseballs, but like he's been using it as a club. And when I do a test on the bat for blood or tissue, I discovered, okay, it's not blood or tissue on there because it's been washed in bleach. Now I've got a dinged bat washed in bleach, a B.O. alibi, it fits the general description. How many of you now think he's guilty? Raise your hand. Raise it high so I can see it. A few more. Okay. This is a hanging jury over here. You see that? This whole group is about committed to getting rid of this guy now. Now, at the search warrant, I discover he's got a pair of jeans, but everyone's got jeans. But this is the cool thing about his jeans. They're just filthy with mud and dirt and all that kind of stuff on them. But when you use luminol, which is a test that luminesces under certain body fluids and blood, sure enough, they luminesce on the knees, right at the spot of the knees. Now, you do a KM test, it's, blood, it's not, not, not blood. Sometimes some detergents will also luminesce. So it looks like he's been spot cleaning his pants at the knees. The rest of the pants are still dirty and muddy. So whatever he's trying to get off, it's not dirt or mud. That's everywhere else too. There's something else he's trying to get off at the knees. What could that be? Now, a lot of you are waiting to see what's going to fill up in this black area here before you make any decisions. You're thinking, I'm not going to vote until I know for sure that all that space is filled. So let's quickly fill that up for you real quick. Not only that, there's no sign of forced entry in the house. Whoever got in had a way to either let in or he had a key to get in. Only three people have a key. Victim, victim's mother, and her crazy boyfriend, who you're talking to. As a matter of fact, her boyfriend is crazy. And he'll tell you in the interview that he's had an up and down relationship with this girl. Yes, it's, they're constantly fighting. Yes, he does smack her once in a while. It doesn't mean anything by it. He always apologizes afterwards. They make up. It's just his personality. He's kind of explosive. And he found out yesterday that she was cheating on him. I always say, who could cheat on such an upstanding citizen as this? If you had your daughter dating this guy, I can't even understand why she would cheat on him. But he says, I found out that she was cheating. I, mean, I lost my temper. I started smacking her a little bit, and I did threaten to kill her in front of her friends. But I didn't kill her. I think some of you right now know what we have in, our, in front of us, right? Let's go a little further. A witness says when the suspect ran out of the house, he was wearing a particular kind of shoe. It's a little higher on the side. It's got a leather strip on the side. Very unusual. You do a little research. Only one shoe store sh uh, sells this boot. They're the only shoe store in the entire county that sell it. It's not very popular. In the last three years, they've only sold 20 or 30 pairs. And who do you think's got one at the search warrant? He's got one when you search his house. So he's a one in 30. He's a one in three. You see the problem? 
And the odds are kind of stacking up against him. And if you'd have got to this thing just a few minutes late, he would have already killed himself because he's writing a suicide note when you knocked on the door. And in that suicide note, he says that yesterday he did something so horrific, he cannot forgive himself. He can't take it back. He lost his temper. He wishes he hadn't done it. But he doesn't say in the suicide note that he killed anybody. How many of you feel pretty good about him right now? Raise your hand. We're making this case. We don't have a single piece of direct evidence. We're making it entirely on circumstantial evidence. And the, and the witness, when they saw him run out of the house, saw him get in a car that she thought was pretty unusual. It's a car that she had seen in her college days. Well, what is it? It's 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. What color? It was like a mustard color. How many of you even know what a Carmen Ghia looks like? Raise your hand. These are all the old people in the room right here. Because nobody else knows what that car is. Come on. And when you do a little research in the state, you discover there's only two functional Carmen Ghias of that year in the entire state. You don't know what color they are. I don't tell you that on the DMV record. But when you do the search warrant at his house and pull up in that garage door, what do you think he's got in a garage? That, by the way, is a Carmen Ghia. So you all know, okay? This is how we make cases. It's still quite possible that he's innocent. And a defense attorney is going to offer, I can explain that this way, and I can explain that some other way, and I can explain that some other way. He just happens to have eight set of inconvenient coincidences that make him look bad. But is that reasonable? So either there's eight alternative explanations that explain this evidence, or there's one common causal factor that ties all the evidence together, and it happens to be the guilt of this suspect. Which is more reasonable? This is how we make circumstantial cases. We kind of surround our defendant with the evidence. And I won't use eight pieces. In a trial, I'll typically use 80 pieces. And the more you use, the less reasonable it is. This is the nature of circumstantial evidence. And juries are told by judges that they are not to consider circumstantial evidence to be any less reliable than direct evidence. They are to be given the exact same weight in your considerations. Stop saying it's just a circumstantial case. There's no such thing. It's a circumstantial case. But it's not just a circumstantial case any more than it's just a direct evidence case. They're to be considered exactly the same. Why do I say all that? Because we're now about to look at the direct evidence circumstantially. Need both skill sets. As we look at what the Gospels say, and I don't trust any witness who comes on the stand or I interview as part of an investigation until I apply a test. We offer 14 questions that jurors can ask as they're sitting in a panel assessing eyewitnesses. They break down into these four categories, and to make it even easier, I'll give them to you in simple words. In this first service, we're gonna talk about the first two. Are witnesses present, and can they be verified? So let's just quickly get into this. The first question is whether or not they are present. There are sometimes people will actually say they're part of something when they in fact weren't. Here's my dad in 1974. He's walking this suspect over into trial. My dad's the guy on this end over here, this uh, polyester suit he hates so much, but you can see his little gun is sticking out the back of his behind. That's not his behind. That's actually a gun. He hates this picture, but I think it's funny, so I always use it just to mock him. <laughs> But this guy was accused of killing a 10-year-old girl on Thanksgiving Day in 1972. Brutally attacked her, cut her up, threw her off the, off the cliffs two counties north of us. It had gone unsolved because this guy confessed to all of it in gruesome detail. A thousand pages of transcript of every horrific thing he did to her and how he killed her. None of it is true. It's all a lie. He had a relationship with this, uh, uh, this detective, the lady who's holding his arm. 
and the guy with the big, nice sideburn there, those guys were like his best friends for months, but none of it is true. And by the time we excluded him with blood evidence on the eve of the trial, the case was now 18 months old. It's still unsolved. We lost 18 months on this guy. If you're not present, you can't be the killer. You also can't be a witness. And the question I always had as a non-believer is, why should I believe that the Gospels are written by people who were actually there? I mean, we have the Gospels. The, the, the ministry of Jesus occurs 30 to 33 AD, right around that range, okay? But you don't have a council in the church affirming the Gospels as canonical until the Council of Laodicea at 363. That's 330 years later. If the Gospel authors wrote them late in history, toward that end of history, they shouldn't be trusted. They're written too late. They can't be written by eyewitnesses. They're all dead by 300 years. See the problem? And there are people out here writing books and are very well established like Bart Ehrman who has written a number of popular level books to make a case just like this. Bart's an expert, probably one of the foremost experts in the Bible today, perhaps the best read biblical expert, and he's not a Christian. You know, I'm not sure he's an atheist, but he's at least agnostic. He might be a theist of some stripe, but he's definitely not a Christian. And he's trying to convince us that we've lost the true, whatever version of Christianity might be true is lost. You can't trust the documents that are written late, not even written by the people whose names are on them. If he's right, if the Gospels are written late, we should walk out of this room today and be done with this. On the other hand, the closer we move the authorship to the time of the event, the more confident we can be that at least they were present. They could be there to see, to see what they said they saw. Make sense? So why do we think they're early? I'm gonna give you a circumstantial case. I think these are very early documents. Okay, Bible scholars, which book in the Bible, Sunday school graduates here, right? Which Bible book describes the first century after the ascension of Jesus? That's called the book of Acts. Very good. A little more. We can, do, we can all do this, guys. We can do this. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Does Luke mention anywhere in the book of Acts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which takes place around 70 AD? Does any Bible book mentioned the destruction of the temple. Jesus is gonna predict it in Matthew 23, but does any book talk about its eventual destruction? Not a single one. And Luke leaves it out of his narrative. He's recording the first century, but this is missing. Also, the siege that takes place prior to the destruction of the temple, that's also missing. Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, is he alive or dead? He's alive, but we know when he's martyred, that's also missing. His death is missing. So is Peter's, by the way, about the same time. How about James, the brother of Jesus, leader of the church? In Acts 15, he's the leader of the council, the first council ever commissioned. Is his death mentioned? He dies around 61. He's missing also. Now, Luke is not afraid to mention deaths. He mentions the death of Stephen. He mentions the death of James, the brother of John, dies in 44 AD. But these are missing. Why would they be missing? What's the most reasonable inference? Hadn't happened yet. That's a good explanation for why they're missing. Let's just go with that assumption for a second, and we'll date the book of Acts at 60 AD, just one year prior to the first missing event. That's fair. It's conservative. Now, we know that he writes two books, Luke. He writes the book of Acts, and before that, he writes what? Yes, isn't that hard, right? Gospel of Luke. 
And we know that it comes before, but how much before? I'm going to put it at 53. Here's why. We know in Acts 1, he says in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until he was taken up to heaven. So we know there's a former book. That's the Gospel of Luke. Got it? But how do we date it? Okay, take a look at Paul's writing. Paul writes in 1 Timothy that your elders in your church, they actually are worthy of a wage. Because the scripture says, he says, the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's trading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. The scripture says that. Really? What does Paul think scripture is? Well, he's quoting one verse from Deuteronomy, do not muzzle the ox while it's trading out the grain. But where's the other verse come from? 63 AD, Paul is quoting the gospel of Luke, chapter 10. He's calling it scripture, as early as 63 AD. But I said 53 is when I would date it. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians, and by the way, the Corinthian church is a, a nightmare, right? It's a mess. Everyone's doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing, including the Lord's Supper. You're like they're partying like a rock star, right? That's not how you do the Lord's Supper. So Paul writes to them and says, hey, guys, come on, knock this off. You know how we taught you. You need to return to something you know we already taught you, that we received. And he talks about the Lord's Supper as it was given to him. And he uses this verse, which I thought was really cool when I first read it, because it says, that Jesus says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, Jesus, now this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Read your Bibles. Gospel of John has the Lord's Supper. So does Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't say that Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Matthew doesn't say that. Mark doesn't say it that way. Who do you think he's quoting? He's quoting Luke. He's quoting Luke from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And now he's doing it as early as 53 AD. And he's saying, go back to the thing you knew prior. So this gospel apparently has been around even prior to that because he's calling a group at Corinth to go back to this. Do you see how early the scriptures are available to these people? Now, think about that for a minute. The first chapter of Luke's gospel, here's what Luke says. Theophilus, I'm not an eyewitness, I'm a detective. I've spoken to all the people who saw this stuff. And it says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Why does he call it an orderly account? Duh. If it's an account, I can assume it's orderly, can't I? Who writes a book with all the chapters messed up? I mean, I assume it's in the right order. Why would he even say that? He says that because in the first century, there's a bishop named Papias. And that bishop says that Mark's gospel was written by Mark as he listened to the teaching of Peter in Rome. And Mark was very careful about accuracy, but not so careful about order. Really. That was common knowledge in the first century. Luke says, I've got a gospel that's got all of Mark's stuff in it, but now it's in the right order. Isn't that interesting? And sure enough, who does he quote word for word more than anyone else in his gospel? Mark. That means that Mark's gospel is probably going to be dated before him. Do you see how close we are now to the actual events? We're within the generation of eyewitnesses. That means if I'm going to tell this lie, I've got to tell it in front of people who actually would know better. It's harder to tell a lie when you're telling it close to the time of the actual occurrence. You either got to tell it way late or tell it in a different part of the world. But it's hard to tell it in that region at that time. Make sense? There's a good reason to believe that the gospel writers are present at the time based on the internal evidence of Scripture. And you see how I got there? I got there circumstantially. Present. 
The only thing we're going to cover today is this one. Are they verified? Now, how do we verify something? Well, sometimes if a witness says something, I'll verify it by using some other piece of evidence. If I was to, uh, let's say we had a bank robbery. You'll be my, my teller, okay? And, I, and I, you, you'll be my witness. And I came into the teller. I'm the bad guy. And I put my hand on the, I said, give me all your money with a gun in my hands. And you saw that, and you told me that he came in and leaned over the counter, and he said, give me all your money. How could I verify that? What could I look for to verify that claim from the witness? Fingerprints. Where? On the counter. They better be in that direction, right? They better match what she says. If they do, I'll have corroborative evidence. But did you notice something? The fingerprints will tell me nothing about whether I had a gun. The fingerprints will tell me nothing about what I said. All corroborative evidence is touch point evidence. It gives you one small piece from which you infer the larger account. Make sense? That's important. Because we can do something with the scripture as well to look and see if there's any corroborative evidence. But remember, all corroborative evidence is touch point evidence. So instead of using fingerprints here, I think we can use archeology span to do just this work. And so if you'd have gone back 150 years and asked people to assess Luke's reliability, a lot of scholars would have said Luke is unreliable. He mentions things for which there are no outside support. I'll just give you a brief list of some of the things that were doubted either in Luke's gospel or in John's gospel by skeptics until in the last hundred years we've now discovered the archaeology to support the claim. This happens all the time. People will have a skeptical doubt and we'll discover it in archaeology and put it to bed. And I could do this all day with you. I could go through one after the other pieces of archaeological support for things that Luke has written. There are volumes and two really good websites online that can help you find this kind of corroborative evidence. By the way, my Mormon family, and I take trips to Salt Lake City every year with the admissions team, do you think there's any archaeological support for the thousand-year history from 600 B.C. to 400 A.D. that's mentioned in the Book of Mormon on this continent? Is there a single foundation, a single city, a single sword, a coin, a single name from the Book of Mormon that's inscribed anywhere on the continent? I don't expect to have every single detail from the Bible corroborated by archaeology, but I expect something. There's nothing for the Book of Mormon, not a single thing. You cannot write a volume of anything related to archaeology in the Book of Mormon. So as I was kind of examining this for the first time, these two books, simultaneously, I had the same stuff that gave me confidence in Scripture really destroyed my confidence in the Book of Mormon. We can have good confidence in this kind of touch point. But how about this? What if I caught the guy who did the robbery, right? And I interviewed him. And I said, hey, I know you did that robbery. I wasn't even in the bank. Dude, I got videotape of you in the bank. I don't really have that. I just tell him that. Okay, well, I was in the bank, but I wasn't doing a robbery. Well, you walked over and you wrote a demand note at that counter. No, I was writing a deposit slip. Oh, dude. Then you took the demand note over to the teller. You screamed at her, pointed at her. No, I was just upset that I forgot my ID out in the car, so I went outside to get my ID. Now, has he actually confessed to doing a robbery in the bank? No. But will I use those statements against him in trial? Oh, yeah. Because he's put himself at the time of the crime, at the scene of the crime, just trying to describe it a different way. These are reluctant admissions that I can use in trial. It turns out there are many first century reluctant admissions about Jesus. People who are not Christians, who don't believe in Jesus, but who will have to reluctantly admit certain facts in denying Jesus. Let me give you an example of this. Here's a guy named Thallus, who in the first century, 
he's writing and he's talking about the darkness that occurred at the crucifixion. And he denies that it's supernatural. He says it's just an eclipse of the sun. See it there on the bottom? Just an eclipse of the sun. Really? Well, in order to deny that it's from God, you have to admit a few things, don't you? You have to admit, apparently there's a Jesus guy, and apparently he was crucified, and apparently there was darkness. You're just describing it in a different way. So you had to reluctantly admit these three facts in order to make a denial about Jesus. You see how you backed in? I wasn't there doing a robbery. I was just making a deposit. You've backed in that you were there. They're backing into this. Tacitus is a very well-known um, a historian, he says he has to back into these facts in his claim that consequently to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, probably the resurrection, Again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular, just like South Orange County, right? That's where we're from. There you go. So you've got to back in to these reluctant admissions about Jesus to make this kind of a claim. This isn't like Christ followers. Here's a guy named uh, Marabara Serapion, who's a Syrian philosopher, talking to his son about several leaders. He mentions a wise king, a Jewish wise king, that the Jews actually murdered their own wise king, and after that, their kingdom was abolished. He's got to back into some more facts. And here's Phlegon, who backs into two really interesting sets of facts. He says that Jesus had a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. And while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. These guys don't believe this is true. They're just reporting the earliest accounts that they're hearing as well as non-believers. If you wonder when these accounts began, you can have certainty they were early. And these reluctant admissions, if you lost every single piece of Christian scripture and all the church fathers and all you had was the writing of these pagans, that's what you would know about Jesus. Not bad. You'd know a lot about Jesus, wouldn't you? It's corroborative. Is it everything? No, but is it touch point? Exactly what I would expect in corroborative evidence. Now, we did two things today. We did examine, are they present? Can they be verified? The bigger questions I really had, though, is why should I trust they haven't changed over the years, haven't been corrupted over the years? And why should I trust that Christians can be trusted? For, they're so biased. They're Christians. Of course they like Jesus. No wonder they write nice things about Jesus. They're his buddies. We'll talk about that in the next service. But I want to kind of end where we started. We started with this guy who was accused and we asked certain questions and we said we can't trust this guy look at the evidence looks pretty powerful now we turn a corner and we ask the same kinds of questions about Jesus do we have any good reason we build the case circumstantially we look at the early dating of these documents how often they're quoted by others we look at their verification either through archaeology or through other uh, pagan sources and we have two categories we didn't discuss at all today we'll do that in the next service but these things all point to the same conclusion, that we have a document that passes all the tests we would typically offer for any eyewitness in any trial. The question is, are we willing to accept what it says? Because I think if you examine this, you make a very strong circumstantial case, you end up with different answers to the very same questions when posed to Jesus. Should we trust him? Should we trust what's been written about him? I think you can trust this. The question you have to ask is whether or not you want to trust it. 
At the, some point, I had to ask myself, Jim, is it about there not being enough evidence, or is it about you not wanting there to be enough evidence? It was a matter of will as much as anything else for me. Will you accept what they say about Jesus? If you want to test it, you can test it till you basically knock yourself out. It'll pass the test. The question is whether or not you'll accept what it says anyway. Now look, when I do a presentation like this, as an atheist, I hated the fact that Christians sell books. Christians are always selling something. That's why they do this stuff. Not because it's true, because they're trying to make a buck off of it. Now I'm a Christian who's got a book. <laughs> See how God works? That's how God works. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you some resources. You have on your chairs there, you have this card. Tear it in half. Half of it is a Bible insert, which will discuss the entire case. You'll see it there visually. You can put that in your Bible. The other half is my way of sending you one personal email from me next week, which will have a downloadable link with the videos, audios, PDF files, and two long Bible inserts, one about early dating, that you can put in your Bible. That's going to be for free. I just want you to have the resources. If you don't have a card or you don't fill it out, at the book table, you'll see that I've got a sign-up sheet. You don't get that set of handcuffs, but you can sign up for these resources. And of course, if you want me to sign a copy of the book where I've gone into all of this in much greater detail, I'll be more than happy to do that. But I want you to have something for free. That's more important to me. That's why I'm here. I'm retired now. I get to volunteer and do ministry. That's what this is. One last thing. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. I wear a bulletproof vest a lot of the time. And when I do it, it's because I know how that vest works. I've shot rounds into that vest. I know that it can stop a round. I've seen it stop rounds. But the minute you're in a shooting where you know you're going to take rounds, but you're going to stand tall and return fire because you know you have a vest on, you move from belief that to belief in because now you're trusting the vest to do the thing you know that it can do. When you can stand tall because you have belief in that vest, it's only because I did the hard work of seeing that it can stop around. It's my confidence in the truth that I've examined that allows me to stand differently in the vest. Folks, if you have been accepting Christianity without examining it, you have a different kind of life that you live. You don't step into the world trusting it the way you could if you first had a reasonable belief that it's true. So that when the hard times come, and trust me, if you've got students who are in college, you know it's coming. For many of you in this room, they've already walked away from the church because they're pushed in college. And if they aren't sure that it's true, they cannot stand tall in this. There's a difference. I want you to have that kind of faith that is grounded in a solid worship God with your mind. It's part of our commandment. It's not just to worship him in song. When you spend time worshiping by reading, by examining your faith, you are worshiping God. He sees that and credits that to your account as worship. Do you get that? It's hard stuff we're talking about. If I told you when we started we're going to talk about church history and textual criticism in the next hour, you wouldn't even want to come. But that's what we do so we can have strong, credible faith. Let's pray.
I'm going to ask Bobby to come up with me. Because you're going to give a chance in a minute to go to that cross and do Lord's Supper. And I would love if you use that opportunity to commit to God a life of an examined faith that you're prepared to make a defense for what you believe. Now we'll pray. Father, I just thank you so much for opportunities to, to grow and to, to, to join this family and to become a part of a larger community. Father, would you just give us courage to spend the time that we typically spend so many other ways. Father, please forgive us for all the stupid ways we spend our time. Help us to come back home to study your character, to worship your character because we know it so well, to examine why we believe what we believe, to move from belief that to belief in in a much deeper and richer way. Father, we love you. We give you this morning. We give you our lives. We give you our thoughts. It is in the name of Jesus. And everyone here says, amen. amen. Hey, can we thank Jim?